and welcome to another episode of Healing Fucking Sucks. I am your host, Jackie Hall. Today on the show, we have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Sam Zand. He is a psychiatrist, a professor of holistic psychiatry, founder of Anywhere Clinic, co-founder of Better Universe Foundation, and also I think he's the founder of Better You Foundation. You founded that too? Okay, so how are you today? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Thank you for coming on. I'm excited to have you here. I'm going to start the show off like I do every one of my shows, and I'm going to ask you, what is mental health to you? Yeah, mental health to me really is finding our inner alignment. It's the intangible part of life that keeps us centered and grounded and clear-minded and curious. It's that kind of prioritization of our, our morals, our thought patterns, our belief systems, so that they're all aligned and they're all in a healthy place. I think when we talk about mental health, we shouldn't be talking about disorders or diagnoses. We should just be talking about our own self-awareness, self-exploration, and inner alignment. Nice. So you look at it as, um, like, for instance, I've been diagnosed with certain quote unquote, you know, uh, disorders. Um, so you don't look at them. Yeah. I think uh, as you look at diagnoses and symptom clusters, these are downstream effects that we notice in our day-to-day life. But if we focus on the downstream effects, we're just trying to, you know, band-aid a crack in a dam, right? It's going to explode. And so going upstream and then really looking at where are we not in balance? Where are we not in harmony in our life? Whether that's with ourselves and our self-talk, whether that's our relationships, whether that's our workplace, our home life, our beliefs about the world and the unknown, where is there a disharmony or a disconnect or an inner conflict? And if we can really address those at the core on top of, you know, understanding how physically we need to be involved with our body as well, that's the direction I think we need to go in when we talk about mental health. And unfortunately, I think we just... We focus too much on there's something wrong with me. I need to fix it rather than there's just something that's not in balance, not in harmony. And I need to explore that and bring more attention and nourishment to it. I love that. That's like the holistic side of you. I love that. What made you want to get into psychiatry and start learning about mental health? Yeah, it's funny. I I grew up kind of being forced into medicine by my parents. I have two sisters who are doctors. One's a dermatologist, one's a family doc. And it was just the expectation, but I kind of fought it, right? Being an adolescent, young adult. And it wasn't until I really just started to think about how I want to give back. And I always had that in me to want to help people. So I started to think, okay, well, I didn't like the surgery and the blood and getting to know the body as much as I really liked the mind. And I always felt that, through life experiences, you know, family dynamics and every, all of us have family stuff that goes on. And and that's how we view the world. Usually from a young age, I was kind of the young, quiet one reflecting a lot. And so the mental side of life, I think I was just very present to. And I realized that there's actually a profession where you can help people with this intangible, the, the things that can't be tested. That sounded interesting and fun to me. And so Went to med school and, and psychiatry residency, but the truth is once I started getting exposed to what psychiatry really was like in day-to-day practice, it didn't really 
feel aligned, right? It felt kind of like, wow, we're, we're, I'm seeing, you know, my trainers like talk to people for five minutes and then put them in a you know, psychiatric hold. And now they're kind of imprisoned for a few days. And I'm seeing, you know, different doctors in the community just sitting with someone who's opening up their vulnerabilities, but distracted and looking at emails. And, you know, this, I don't think the industry really presented itself well, um, at least in my experience. So then it became kind of a challenge. How do we improve this? How do we actually find the healing that people are coming for rather than just feeling like they're, you know, in this turnstile system of being dispensed meds or ending up in the hospital or being stigmatized about what they're going through? None of that made sense to me. And so through residency and starting my own career and starting my own practice, it was kind of this challenge that was really fun. And so the journey of fighting, you know, the the parental force to become a doctor, to finding <laughs> my own angle, to then realizing, wow, there's there's a lot of kind of poor standard of care here and then wanting to reform that. And that's been my journey as a psychiatrist. I love that. What I'm just curious, what was your go-to if you weren't going to become a psychiatrist? Yeah, that's funny. I... I mean, I've had so many different kind of fantasies about things, but one was um, to actually become a basketball coach. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I took the steps and I started coaching at different levels and reaching out to colleges. And I just realized oh, that's, a, that's a tough path. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. I always had kind of a business side of me. I, my When I went to Johns Hopkins, I studied public health and I studied entrepreneurship and management. And... I vividly remember telling my dad, like, I just want to be a businessman. And he would just look around the room and grab something and point at it and be like, do you want to sell Kleenexes or do you want to maybe be a doctor first and then get in that business? <laughs> and that kind of, you know, didactic over the years, I guess, rubbed off on me. And I figured, yeah, being a doctor sounds like a way to give back. And then bringing that to scale will require a lot of understanding of the business side of things. So I think navigating both of those is important and, and so ultimately kind of still am a businessman at the end of the day right but trying to prioritize patient care first is what keeps you know my that's so funny a basketball coach your dad, <laughs> yeah, though, maybe one like, day. your dad was like no i mean i'm not saying it's funny as led like you couldn't do it i'm just saying like you're this great uh psychiatrist now and you have all of these retreats and stuff that you do and it's just funny how life is you know Right. You know, yeah, I thought imagine. I was going to be an actress and after actually went after that one and then realized my mental health was like not in the game for that. So okay. here on the show, I like to um, explain to my listeners what they should be looking for when, when they go to the doctor for their mental health. Because uh, for me, when I first started, when I was 18, I just went to... Um, just a family practitioner and they just kind of threw medication at me. There was like no therapy, you know, um, suggested or anything like that. And, um, it was a rough road for a long time. And I know that since I was 18, you know, mental health has really come up, but, um, I think there could have been more done in that situation. So, Tell the listeners what they should be looking for when they go in to see a psychiatrist and also to how not to be scared. These should be people that 
you should want to go talk to you so you can get help. You know, it's like if you have a broken leg, you want to go to the hospital because you know a doctor is there that's going to fix it. But it there's like a gray area with psychiatry. Can you tell us a little bit about, about oh, that? Sorry, such an important question because I, I totally understand this apprehension or fear about seeing a mental health professional. Whereas, like you said, if you broke a bone, you're like, please take me to a doctor, right? But if mm-hmm. you're feeling down, if you're anxious, if you're not sleeping well, you have insomnia and any kind of list of day-to-day things, there's almost this disconnect of, I don't want to admit that I'm going through this, or I don't want to feel judged, or I'm not sure that the person's going to be caring and compassionate and kind of receive what I'm going through. And so it's such an important question to know you know, what, what should I look for in a mental health professional? What is that journey like taking that first step? I teach uh, psychiatry residents. We train physician assistants and nurse practitioners who get into the mental health profession um, across all of our practices. And so the first thing that we teach above anything else, I, I try to tell them, like, let's forget all of the uh, traditional approaches that we've learned because a lot of what we've learned started 50 years ago. And if you went to a surgeon who's telling you, you know, we're doing this thing that's 50 years old, and it would probably scare you. Like, no, the surgery should have probably advanced in 50 yeah. years, right? <laughs> and mental health should have too. And so the first thing I tell my trainees is let's just throw that out the window. And number one is just focus on rapport and connection and allowing a safe space for somebody to be able to explore difficult things in their life. That is the number one thing you should look for when you're seeing somebody is, do they make me feel safe? And if not, you know, it's not really going to be the best productive visit for you. And it might not be that the, something wrong with that provider, but I always say like you need a good connection. And that doesn't mean there's something wrong with either person, but to have that rapport needs to be paramount. Next, we need to have the adequate time to explore what's going on in someone's life. And yes. so what's the length of the visit? What's the regularity of the visits? If they're saying, you know, hey, let's put you into a 10-minute slot and I'll see you again in three months, and we're not really getting anything done. Um, so to have some time or some consistency, I think, is really important because what needs to happen is an exploration of all the factors that are contributing to what you're noticing, right? If someone comes into me and says, I'm, I'm having panic attacks, the panic attacks is where they're living, And the average doc might just say, okay, well, let's give you a medicine for panic. But again, this is kind of a Band-Aid approach, right? It's it's Mm -hmm. this release valve. It's um, trying to change neurochemistry and hoping that in two or three months, anxiety will go away with things like antidepressants. But the quicker path is to really understand what's contributing to the panic. And most people don't know because if they did, they'd probably start addressing it. So this becomes a session to increase self-awareness through guidance. And that's what a good mental health practitioner should be doing, whether it's a psychiatrist or a therapist or a PA or NP, um, really exploring all the physical factors, all the mental and cognitive factors, the thought patterns, all the environmental factors. And really, is there anything else, you know, spiritual factors like mortality and purpose and meaning? Like These are all important things that usually doctors you wouldn't think of as the person to sit and talk with you. It would be a parent or a counselor or a you know, a mentor, or maybe in some circles, a spiritual figure, a leader. Um, so that's, I think, what we all need to kind of reframe, both from the clinical side and from the patient side, is that 
we're here really sitting in a safe place to explore some of the difficulties that are contributing to what we're noticing about our life now. But this is, gonna, this is a journey that we need to kind of commit to together to be there for each other so I can be the best practitioner possible. And, you know, you're open to that exploration together. That's so nice. You're giving me such hope in the world, right? I can tell my listeners that I do know from experience of having actual psychiatrists that actually sat down and listened to what I had to say instead of, okay, in like 15, 20 minutes, what, you know, what's going on? Here's a prescription out the door. Um, my last psychiatrist that I had, I could call her uh, if something drastic changed in my life and my spiked or something like that. And having that um, support there is major for me because um, I don't really have a support system. And my mom just recently started coming around to mental health. She has always been kind of confused about my mental my whole life. She's never really understood it. And so this has been a really long journey for me, but she is very open to it now and she's listening and she listens to every one of these episodes. So I'm, I'm really excited from this journey because it's helping her out to, you know, being able to understand her. I commend you for you know, taking that, those steps in your journey to be open and vulnerable and the old cliche, you know, make your mess your message, right? Let's let's turn what we're going through into our calling and find purpose from it. So I, I just, I thank you for doing that because I think that's the message we need. Like even, you know, all of us, even mental health professionals, myself, like I have a mental health journey that I go through and, you know, to be able to normalize that, I think is important. This is, and so also shout out mom, who sounds like she's taking those steps now as well. Yeah. Shout out mom. What, what? (laughs) I love her so much. Thank you for that. Because also to something that I have been doing is I like to tell people that I appreciate them for being there for me or whatever. And I feel like we don't tell each other that enough. So thank you for supporting me on your end with that. Um, It's really important. Well, I had a question when you were talking, but I didn't want to interrupt. How long do you think a psychiatrist should take with a patient to get to know them? Yeah, that's a good question because I think it comes from this precedent that we feel rushed in these sessions. Um, And, you know, I've seen different clinics have five minute sessions with people. I've seen, you know, one hour length sessions. We generally kind of cater to what's needed. And so there's a balance here between trying to schedule things into these slots that like need to have need to be filled at the end of the day or else you know the fiscally we can't continue right this is the problem we have in modern medicine is where doctors are constantly decreasing time lengths of visits because reimbursements are going down and so all of that so if if that didn't matter and it shouldn't i think we need to spend at least half an hour we need to do a one hour kind of inventory, but here's the magic, I think, in the, the way, even if that hour isn't possible, is let's have regular sessions, right? Let's not wait a month. Let's not wait two months. Let's meet every week. I think most psychiatrists get into like a one month interval, sometimes two or three months. And now we have the opportunity to not have to 
dive into everything in one session. That's sometimes the downside of doing a full hour. It's like, that's overwhelming, right? And maybe in session one, we just have to get to know each other and understand what's acutely going on. And so we can't sleep. We, we can't leave the house because we're having anxiety. You know, are we suicidal? Like, let's get, let's address the most urgent issues. And I often in session one don't want to ask somebody about their most difficult traumas, right? You just met me. Like, this is a little quick, right? And so let's just address what's acutely urgent. Find a path there, teach some coping skills, build some awareness and understanding about what might be contributing more at a surface level. Then we get into session two. And, you know, how are things going? Do we feel a little bit more balanced, a little bit more at ease? Okay, now but we kind of know each other and hopefully there's a little bit of trust developing. We can't just expect it on day one. Now let's talk about traumas. We generally wait till session two or three to dive deep like that. And so I think, you know, a 20 or 30 minute session is plenty if we're seeing each other once a week, but if it's once a month, then we really should be spending 40, 50, 60 minutes together. Okay. That's great information. Yeah. And I, I agree with that as well. The one a week thing is so much better than once a month from my experience. And then, I mean, we can share on here that that you and I have teamed up a little bit. Uh, you've been helping me out. We were doing weeklies. I think I canceled last. So Dr. Zan is great, guys. He is um, very therapeutic. He listens to what you have to say. He cares. You can tell that you care. And that's Thank what's you. important because you can tell so many dogs might be looking you in the eye, but like they're somewhere else when that, you know, and they're just jotting stuff down and I get it. We're in such a busy world right now, but with someone like me that suffers from major mental health issues, I'm like, the world does not give me a chance to get my brain back to where it needs to be after all this trauma that I've went through. And and I don't feel like a victim, but I feel like it's not really fair because if I had a broken leg, my work would be like way more lenient on me about doing stuff, but they can't see the tears and the holes in my brain. And this is one of the main reasons why I want to do this podcast so that we can, you know, get people more familiar with this stuff and being out talking about it. I don't want to waste any more time. Like I want to heal. So like I want to find the person that's going to work for me. And so right off the bat, I would be like, this is my trauma. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And they would just kind of be like, okay. And then it was, I almost felt like too overwhelming for them at times. I don't know. I just, is this going to work or not? <laughs> you know, okay, okay. you have good self-awareness and the ability to, you know, do that inventory check on what's contributing so that we can try to start to piece, you know, those layers out. And I think it is a journey, right? All of us have been through some level of trauma, whether we consider it to be a trauma or it's just relative to being five years old and, you know, getting made fun of on the playground, right? Like mm -hmm. that's a, that's traumatic for a five-year-old. Yeah, but the brain is. doesn't know the difference. It stores it, right? And it stores that memory. And so we just need to have empathy for each other. And I think this, you know, there's there's so many thoughts about mental health that, you know, just tough it out, right? It's, it's just like mind over matter. And when we really understand the brain as an organ, you know, you wouldn't tell someone to just tough out their liver disease, right? And yeah. it's, it's just not 
um, the way that works. Now, although we can think our way into changing the brain, right? We can create new neural pathways. Mm-hmm. We also have to be present to, there's been a lifetime of neural pathways. There's been a lifetime of, you know, neurochemistry that needs to kind of slowly kind of be adjusted, changed, nourished, given more attention, more love, more thought. And so it doesn't just happen by, you know, blinking our eyes and saying, I'm not going to have anxiety today. I think we need to be kinder to each other about that for sure. Yes, I'm so glad that you said that because I feel like I'm really trying to put that out on my social media. We're all fighting a battle. Some of us are fighting battles that we don't even know that we're fighting. Um, We're not even aware, you know, some of our traumas that we've had and how they're affecting us because we're just us. We're used to being us. So unless we get evaluated, which by the way, I think everybody should have a therapist. It's beneficial for everyone, but, um, I'm just really trying to encourage people to seek help. At least, at least in the beginning. Right. And I think we shy away because maybe we think we have to depend on someone else or we need to do it ourselves or tough it out alone. Um, but at least let's just help somebody bring us to a place of awareness because what we always preach is you don't want to be dependent on somebody for the rest of your life either. I have a lot of patients who say like, I'm going to stay with you till the end. Right. And it's beautiful. And and I would love to be able to practice that care, you know, and continuity for a long time. But the goal really is to become our own therapist, to become our own healer, to create the support system within ourselves. And, you know, that's also what I think a good mental health professional should be guiding and teaching towards is, Right, here, right now I'm here kind of holding your hand through the process because we need that level of care. It's helpful. It's, it's something that has been, um, you know, on its own, not where you want it to be. But how do we then go from this step to being able to fully trust, love, and depend on yourself and your own insights? And then when life gets a little bit stressful and chaotic, let's come back and try to reorganize things a little bit. Um, but I think it, in many ways, mental health is perceived unfairly as a crutch when really it should just be a gateway. It should be just a, a constant learning and growth that we all go through. I just have to say, because I have the best taste in men, you know, my dating journey has been god awful, but they like to use my mental health against me at the telling their next girlfriend or their fam, oh, she's crazy. Like she's on all this medication or whatever. And I feel like there is a stigma or if you're on medication, you're crazy or there's something like massively wrong with you. And I'm I'm like, some of you guys are on worse medication, like painkillers and stuff for physical pain, you know? Um, but yeah, it's mm-hmm. just about finding the, the understanding and, and getting the world to come together on this. Yeah. Like you said, it's an invisible syndrome. And so, you know, if you have a, a bottle of painkillers in the cabinet and you just broke a bone, nobody's going to judge you for that. Um, but you have a bottle of pills in the cabinet for something that we can't see or understand very well, then there's a level of just confusion around it. And I think the way to add more clarity to that, if we make a parallel to any kind of medical issue, I think we all have more empathy and sympathy there. Somebody breaks a bone, you visit them, you know, and bring them flowers, right? You sign their Mm -hmm. cast. Um, But if we have an emotional fracture, then what happens? And 
So we're, we're generally not as there for each other. It's on us to go talk to somebody about it. And the same way, if you broke a bone, you're going to go get an x-ray. If you've had some kind of emotional fracture, some mental conflict, we're going to do diagnostics, right? We're going to ask questions, you know, what, why is this happening? And we go through a whole list of physical, mental, environmental, and spiritual questions to understand the core of it. Then you have your x-ray, right? Okay, so now we have more understanding on, on the break here and what happened. Um, what do we do next? Well, just like a broken bone, you know, they don't just put you in a wheelchair for the rest of your life, right? They'd say, okay, in fact, the bone can heal itself. If you want, you can just not move that bone for a month <laughs> or two and it would heal itself. But that can't happen. Life gets in the way, right? We, we have too yeah. many things. We can't just put our arm on a table for a month. And so we have to put a cast around it. We need a little structure. We need support. Similarly, we go through an emotional fracture. We need some structure. We need some support. And sometimes that support is talk therapy. Sometimes it's medication. But it's not a lifetime sentence. And so we, after you know a month, take the cast off. Similarly, maybe it's a month, six months, a year, two years. We start looking at, do we actually need these medications? And for some people, if it helps them more than it hurts them, then you know it's okay to stay on long term. For many, it's just kind of a short interval where we needed that extra support. So I think if we look at it that way through the analogy of a cast, then we're not feeling like we have this wheelchair, this disability. You know, we realize that our body can heal itself, our mind can heal itself, and that change is possible. There, there are some things, you know, people are born diabetic. They need medication for the rest of their life. No big deal. They're healthy and happy doing that. Um, somebody's schizophrenic, right? We need to keep that going. Someone has unrelenting depression, anxiety. Um, those things often are improved. And so getting rid of that shame, I think, is such a priority. And, and it comes with just more education and more understanding. Yes, that is so great. God, okay, I'm loving this episode so far. Your analogy is perfect because um, it's sometimes hard to find uh, people that connect with how I see things. And I've always connected my brain being broken like if I were to, you know, break a bone. So I always kind of use that analogy. Now, when you were talking about, you know, neuropathways and how it's going to take us longer, you know, to heal past traumas that we haven't dealt with our whole life. I just have to say that when I'm trying to create that new neuro pathway, it's like trying to drive to London with no GPS. <laughs> That's the best way I can describe it. Like you can't drive to London, number one. But I was just using that to say how hard it can be at first. And it's okay because I have changed a lot of mine. There's, but with medications, there's certain medications, guys, that that they really help. They help you see or feel something that you should already see or feel as a normal person, or maybe you once did before you had all the trauma and you forgot what that was. For me, I, I blacked out so much of my childhood and my teenage years that I feel like I've been depressed my entire life. I don't ever remember a time when I was happy or felt normal. And the older I get and the more educated I get on this mental health journey, the more I am starting to see how my depression is, you know, which is good, though, because that means there's hope. We're pinpointing things. 
Well, I was just going to dive right into to what you're saying because I think it's okay. a, a journey we can all resonate with. Um, you know, when we have these neural pathways built our whole life, they become part of what we call our default mode network. They become part of the background way in which we think, behave, even if we don't understand it. It, it could be our subconscious patterns that are guiding us that time when we get really angry and like, what, why did I get so angry that time? It wasn't even in my conscious mind, but it was in my subconscious because it lives in our default mode network and it's the programming that guides our life. And so when it feels difficult for anybody who's been through therapy and we're going through traumas and we just get more of a bodily reaction, we get tense, we get, you know, I've, I've sat down in the therapy room many times and I could just feel people's tension. I could smell people's tension. Yeah. Right? It's not easy. And the stress, the cortisol goes up and the body responds. There are new medications that help to reset this. There are new medications that help us to get out of those neural pathways that we've been stuck in. And this is where things like ketamine and even newer drugs that are on the market that treat um, depression, bipolar, um, they're working on a concept called neuroplasticity. And I think... That might not be a common term for people these days, but it's gaining more traction and understanding. And so I'd really want to educate you know, the, the audience about neuroplasticity. Um, it's this concept that our brain continues to evolve and continues to create new neurons and new connections and new pathways. But sometimes we're just not lubricated. We're just kind of stuck. And the creation of these new perspectives, patterns of thinking, behaving become more difficult. This is why somebody who's been depressed for a long time, they're like, I know I need to go to the gym. I know I need to get out of my house and get some sunshine, but I just can't do it because we're stuck in this kind of pattern and we're neuro rigid. Neuroplasticity is the concept that we can create this burst where all of a sudden new things become easier. Thinking about our same stressors in a different perspective just feels easier. And this is what ketamine therapy does. This is what a lot of the newer drugs that are in clinical research are trying to do is increase the brain's ability to be more flexible, more open-minded, to fertilize new neural connections in a just accelerated fashion. Then the therapy becomes easier. The kind of daily lifestyle changes become a little bit easier. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes for some people, it's like a light switch. Um, but it gives us more of a fighting chance because it's kind of softens the clay of the brain, warms it up so that we can start to mold it a little bit. The way that we often know we should or, or the way that we're now seeing in kind of new insights. Yeah, I actually have heard uh, neuroplasticity because I follow Dr. Caroline Leaf. If you don't follow her, okay. you should. Um, she talks a lot about that. And she's been talking about it before anyone else was really talking about it. Yeah, it's very interesting, neuroplasticity. So I can't wait until we get more information on that. I'll have you back on the show for that. Mm -hmm. I have a quick question. Okay, so we have our subconscious and we have our conscious. What is so hard for us to reach our subconscious? Why is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a great question. And I wish I can give you an exact answer, but it's not an exact science, right? So I can only give you my own theories and hypotheses. But um, quickly with the education of understanding the conscious mind is what we're present to. The thinking that we can think and know we're there, right? We're present. And many of us 
aren't very consciously present a lot, right? When you're kind of distracted and let's say driving and all of a sudden you're on your phone and you're texting, you're kind of con- your conscious mind is thinking about your text. Your subconscious mind is still there in the background, making sure you don't crash, kind of looking up and checking. So the subconscious is that part that we don't have access to, but it's always there. It's present. Now we can access it through certain kind of tools and, and techniques. Um, and that really is getting in a meditative state of mind, right? To be fully present, to work on somatic healing is what we call physical relaxation techniques like breath work and muscle relaxation and things like that. We're becoming less cluttered in our mind. And so we're able to perhaps tap into subconscious thought patterns in a way that normally in our day to day we can't. Um, it's these feelings that live in the background that, you know, I, when I was younger, was sent to the principal's office for doing that bad thing. And now in the background, I'm always worried about authority or I think it wasn't fair. And so I look at this perspective of that life isn't fair. And now when I am getting a parking ticket, I'm screaming at the person because in my conscious mind, I don't want the ticket, but in my subconscious mind, I'm probably thinking about those patterns of my past when I was in the principal's office, when I got in trouble later in life, when I had this thought that the world's not fair. And so they end up governing the way we behave many times, our subconscious thoughts. So to be present, to be in a meditative state, we're actually more present to the whys of how we're reacting and thinking rather than just being stuck in the superficial kind of action and outcome of what's happening and the reactivity. There's also the unconscious mind, which is really fascinating because that's the part of our mind that we theorize are stored memories that we cannot access. This is for someone who maybe has had repressed trauma that someone can say, you know, this happened to you. I was there and they just can't access it. It's the brain's mechanism to put it away and shut it down so it doesn't affect us. This could be um, our memory of being born, right? None of us can actually say, I remember being born. But it's there, the memory lives there in our unconscious mind. We just can't access it. And so when we go to sleep, our unconscious and subconscious mind takes over because our conscious mind shuts down, goes to sleep at night. Um, These are the ways in which we try to think about these things. And, you know, ketamine therapy is a powerful way that we can actually access our subconscious mind as well because it allows us to disconnect from our normal kind of conscious feelings and projections and just kind of go on this somewhat psychedelic journey. And we start to see things about areas of our, of our mind that maybe we're not as present to. Are you able to eventually align the two? Yeah, that's the beautiful part about what we call subconscious reprogramming. Once we can start to understand and become present to some of these subconscious patterns, then we can understand that some of these patterns don't serve us. Right? The, I am not worthy of love. I'm I'm never going to be successful. These are limited beliefs that often live in our subconscious. And when we recognize them and we, we understand where they came from, because we had a friend or parental figure always putting us down and that became part of our programming. Um, Consciously, we're probably not walking through life saying I'm never going to be successful. Some of us are, unfortunately, but many of us, that just happens in the background. And when we access that, then we start to reprogram it. And this is through journaling and talk therapy and affirmations and self-reflections and really going through, I'm a huge advocate, obviously, of ketamine therapy, 
mm-hmm. really kind of aligns all of these strategies together because now we have this neuroplastic kind of reset. We're more disconnected from our normal patterns of being so we can access our subconscious. While we're mentally lubricated, we can actually start thinking about things that will then cement further. And then the talk therapy becomes so much more accelerated. I've done therapy five, six months, a year with people. And they do ketamine therapy for one, two, three sessions. And it's almost like everything's clicked in that moment because now we finally reset the hardware so that the software can be properly installed. Yeah, I need my hardware, like hit with a hammer and reset several yeah. times. So, and, um, you know, we joke, but like we used to do lobotomies on people only 50 years ago. You know, we literally put a chisel through someone's eye socket and try to take out a part of their brain. Like, So we understood the brain needed to be reset. There's just much more humane and gentle ways to do it now. Yeah, no more shock therapy, thank God. It's commonplace, actually. So I have one more question and then we will move on and talk about ketamine because that's how you and I kind of met each other and how this whole journey kind of started. When you are pregnant with your child and if you are in an abusive relationship, when the baby's brain starts to develop, if the mother stays in this situation, does the baby automatically born with trauma? Yeah, this is a really, really tough question because we don't we don't know the answer, right? There's no tests on a baby's brain. There's no tests on a human brain right now that are very conclusive about anything. So what we can theorize is that if we've had a traumatic uh, pregnancy, labor delivery, um, and there are traumatic genetic imprinting, there's maybe physical imprinting, you can extend this to, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome and things like Mm -hmm. that. So many different factors. In some ways, we're going to have um, kind of preset neural pathways. But the beauty of life is that none of that is rigid. None of that has to be that way forever. So I'm sure that there are case studies where you can take someone who's had a lot of traumatic upbringing shifted their environment and have found, you know, very just aligned, happy, emotionally stable and relaxed kind of uh, outcomes. Um, and I'm sure that you can find many case studies where somebody's had traumatic uh, before they're even a human life yet, before they're born, right? Traumatic, like in utero experiences that for some reason or another, maybe led to outcomes where their personality is one way they're more prone to feeling, you know, reactive or not. Um, it's so hard to tie together. So because we can't actually conclusively diagnose that or understand that, I think the answer is the same. We just keep nourishing life the best we can, right? And whether we can look at adversity and say this is, I think that's the other thing too, is that we shouldn't cast someone to have a bad outcome just because they had a hardship whether it's mm-hmm. in utero and childhood or adulthood, most of the people that I admire and love and care about have been through so much hardship. And I think that's what makes them beautiful. And so if we move from some the diagnostic, their disease state, that you know there's something bad that happened, we need to treat it and fix it, and we just move to a self-awareness and understanding, whatever that trauma was, whether it was genetic or in utero or developmental or through upbringing, 
that might be somebody's superpower in the way that they've responded to it and the way that the universe has built their outcome because of what they've been through. So that was a lot to say. We have no idea, but let's just do the best we can and love ourselves. And love there's the just so many different factors in life, you know, that play into it. They say there's not enough computing power in the world to download one brain. Like we just don't get it. You know, what? the brain is so hard to understand. Um, so if we think about the infinite, like, you know, complexities of the human brain, like AI and machine learning will help us to understand mental health more. But at the end of the day, it, it is a science of the unknown. And, and I think that spiritual concept of exploring the unknown is always going to be a part of mental health. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, your mind is separate than your brain. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the root word of psychiatry, psyche means soul. Iatry is, um, you know, healer, iatrist healer. And so, you know, a, a cardiologist is trying to heal the heart, right? But um, a psychiatrist is trying to heal the soul. <laughs> like, that's a, that's a tough challenge, right? And that's what excites me. But I think if we understand it that way, then we're not looking for exact science. We're not looking for a black and white understanding. We're approaching it from a different lens of just exploration. Well, then you are also a cardiologist because you guys help us figure out how to heal broken hearts and a cardiologist can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think it's all connected, right? I mean, you can't really metaphorically even treat the the brain. Obviously, there's, there's um, heartbreak and things metaphorically, but physically, you can't treat the brain if you have you know, an uphill battle with the heart. If somebody is really unhealthy in parts of their body, it's all connected. I think we lose sight of that a little bit in modern medicine where we try to hyper-focus on one organ system or one symptom presentation. But part of my work in psychiatry is helping people improve their sleep, their nutrition, their cardiovascular health, their relationships, their financial health, their sexual health, right? It all has to do with our psyche, our soul. I love that. I love that so much. Okay, let's jump into ketamine. Is ketamine a part of your Better You Foundation? Yeah, so Better You is a, a company that we primarily started doing home ketamine therapy through COVID era and telemedicine. We we obviously now do in office visits. We have kind of a range of services, but this all started for me in 2019 when a drug called Spravato got FDA approval, and this is ultimately a form of ketamine that's applied through a nasal spray. It's done in office. And I can remember when I first heard about ketamine, like it was off-putting. I'm like, what, we're giving people what? This is, this sounds wild. You know, this is, this is something I've heard as a club drug or a horse tranquilizer. But when we got FDA approval for depression, I think all of the scientific community is like, wow, there's actually something here. We should pay attention. I started treating patients with this in office. And again, I was seeing the night and day differences I was alluding to. Um, a much more accelerated ability to feel better. Even after just one session, I've never given someone Prozac and they told me I took one pill and I felt so much better. With ketamine, that's actually happening. And so sometimes though, we do it once a week in continuity for a long period of time because with therapy, it really helps to augment the work. Um, but that's that was kind of what steered me into this direction. So while we focus holistic practices at Anywhere Clinic, we focus really primarily on psychedelic medicine with ketamine therapy at Better You. And I love that 
you're making it affordable for people. And I want to ask because so many people are terrified of psychedelics. I was. My first dose, I took not even half of the dose they told me to take because I did not know what to expect. I haven't tripped yet. Um, I've just been microdosing, but I saw a huge difference and my mom saw a huge difference in me and friends that I've had in my life for like 10 plus years are like, you're back. I need my uh, milligrams adjusted, which I messaged you about the other day. It's, 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 it's a journey, God. It's not a miracle drug and it does take time to get your body adjusted to it and everybody's body, you know, acts differently towards it. But I'm a firm believer in ketamine. Yeah. And so a lot of people ask, why ketamine? Why not mushrooms? Why not mm -hmm. ayahuasca? Sure, sure. My first answer is, as a doctor, I legally can't recommend illicit drug use. <laughs> it's like I can get in mm -hmm. trouble with the medical board, lose my license. But off the record, if, if I was just speaking as an educator and not as a physician, I would say they all share the same properties of um, neuroplasticity, right? This is literally what we're after. And psychedelic medicine has taken this huge surge in mental health because of that neuroplastic effect. I teach psychedelic medicine at many different universities. And, you know, we talk about psilocybin. We talk about ayahuasca. Again, we just can't recommend it to a patient to take because it's just not legal, even if it's decriminalized. It's still considered a, you know, a drug of abuse. Um, but the truth is, in countries where it's legal and jurisdictions where it's legal, you look at Oregon and Colorado, what they're doing with psilocybin therapy, there is a lot of good to come from these different uh, psychedelic medicines. Some of them people like because they're plant-based and, you know, others are made in a lab. Um, that's, I think, just a personal preference. Um there's different durations. Ketamine, I think one of the advantages is that it's a short burst. It's 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour or so, where you feel the medicine, whereas psilocybin can be four, five, six hours. And that's Oof. a little bit harder to control, especially for someone who's apprehensive, nervous about the experience. If I was to say, would you rather have a 30-minute experience or a 60-minute experience, you know, <laughs> the, the apprehensive person would pick ketamine every time. Um, and so... You know, it's all just different applications. And I think in the future, three to five years, maybe more, as a psychiatrist, we're going to have formulations of psilocybin to work with. We're going to have MDMA is next on the horizon. It's being studied and almost approved for uh, PTSD. And so even derivatives of LSD, Ibogaine, all of these are being clinically tried right now because we see so much benefit. And so this is, again, where good patient care hopefully will meet the right infrastructure for delivery so that people can can do this in a safe, secure setting. Um, even if the option is open to do it recreationally without getting in trouble, some people just want that structure. And I think that matters for, for many in checking our health, doing a medical review, having some psychotherapy alongside to, to support us. All those are the measures that I think are important. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned in clinic and, you know, having a support system there when you do it, because you have therapists there with you, a support to walk you through it. We're not, we're, we're looking for healing on this journey. We're not looking to go in and get high. 
Well, at least I'm not. Sure, sure. That's really what we're after here as a profession. And to each their own. Some people like to come to the office and, you know, have a doctor sitting by them. Some people like to do it at home because going to the office is stressful and getting a ride and, and having to handle all the logistics. It's, we have this cocoon of healing at home. We have somebody in our life that can be supportive of us. And then as a doctor, we're there kind of online via video, helping them before maybe after session. So there, there's so many ways to make this feel safe and secure. Going right back to the first thing we opened with is it's important that you feel safe and secure when you're ready to take these steps for yourself. Yeah, there's no way I'm going to go into higher dosages without being 100% comfortable because I don't want to have a bad trip. I have a crazy imaginative mind. I need people there with me to, you know, root me on and tell me it's going to be okay. This is safe. Keep my mind focused on like what I'm there for, you know? So yeah, hopefully soon you come to our immersive psychedelic retreat in Puerto Rico, because then you really have all the wraparound care for, you know, the three days or so. And, And that's another exciting application, I think, is you can go to an office, you can do these treatments at home. Uh, under clinical supervision, or you can, you know, find one of these one day programs or weekend programs that allow for really all of the work together. We're doing the meditation, the yoga, the group therapy, the immersion in nature, right? To let just nature be part of our healing, um, the clinically supervised ketamine experiences, and, you know, then a nutritional detox, a, a digital detox, right? Getting some activity in, like all of that. And we do it together, really catapult success. So again, you don't have to go to the jungle in Puerto Rico to do that. You can do it at home. But having the structure in place, I think it's really key. Is that something that you're wanting to advertise is your retreat in Puerto Rico? So we're in early stages right now, um, but we're not really looking to monetize this. I know it's a challenge, right? We're, We're getting... Uh, we've done a veteran retreat that was all free, and that's through the foundation. Um, we've done a retreat for mental health professionals so that they can be there for themselves in order to better be there for others. So I'm really trying to tie this into the foundation to be able to host like once monthly free retreats for people, get that, you know, maybe a little bit fundraised and supported. There's also insurance abilities here that if people have health insurance, you know, part of that um, can go to it. So Again, it's it's not something I'm looking to advertise because we can only hold 12 people and to make it a business, it would be expensive. And I'm not really yeah. in the business of only treating the affluent. <laughs> but if, if we can find a way to understand from this approach, fundraise for it for those who are underserved, replicate it in our community settings, I think that's the ultimate goal. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but if anybody's curious, they can go to metamorphosisresort.com and just learn more about what we have to offer. Tell people where to find you. What are you offering? I mean, we've talked about your Better You Foundation. If someone's like, I want that guy to be my psychiatrist. What do they need to do? What are the steps? <laughs> yeah. Um, so if if anybody wants to take that first step in their mental health journey, there's a lot of different avenues. I think, one, if you have insurance and you want to get a provider, whether it's myself or anybody on my team, we have an amazing team. We're in 12 states. Um you can go to anywhereclinic.com and we accept most insurances. If you happen to not be in one of the states that we service, send us a message because we're continuously adding new states. 
if anybody's interested in learning more about ketamine therapy, I would encourage them to go to betteryoucare.com. That's better you with just the letter U, care.com. And that's where you can learn about ketamine therapy at home. Um, and anyone else who you know, wants to take that first step, maybe doesn't have insurance, maybe can't afford at, uh, at home self-pay treatments like that, we have the Better Universe Foundation, and that can be found at betteruniverse.foundation. You go on there and you submit an intake form, um, just kind of talking about your own mental health journey, and then somebody on our team will get back to you and try to hook you up with a provider through our Pay It Forward program, which basically is we'll do this service for you. We ask that you pay it forward to others through acts of kindness in the community, write a letter about it, and that's your form of payment. Um, we're also doing some online support groups that are free through the foundation. We have our first one uh, launching this month. And myself and a co-founder, Drew Robinson, who has an incredible story. He's a suicide survivor, former baseball player, professional athlete, and now has dedicated his life to being a mental health advocate for San Francisco Giants and just all over. We have online support groups as an introduction to mental health. We're going to be doing these monthly. You can find those on my um, social channels at Dr. Sam Zand. Um, and we'll have hopefully a lot of new support group topics. We're going to do a recovery one with uh, another good friend, Darren Waller, who's a professional football player. We're going to do a somatic healing kind of support group to learn more about how movement of the body helps our mental health. That'll be with Cheryl Burke, who's a uh, Dancing with the Stars champion. And so we're really just trying to bring in a lot of people in the community to advocate and to have just a foot in the door for others to really find their own healing. Whether they have insurance, they can pay for treatment or not, we want to be there for everybody. That is so amazing. I appreciate everything that you're doing. I I can tell that you're really a uh, for people um, with your heart and your soul and your passion. And I can't thank you enough for that because it's so hard to find people in this world these days that care at all. So the fact that you are as high up as you are in your profession and you care that much about people means a lot to me. And I hope to be there too once I finish school. And so. Thank you so much for the kind words. And this opportunity to just educate and explore things. And thank you again for the work that you're doing. It means a lot. I will list in the comment on the show note um, where to find Dr. Sam Zand. And I will put all of the website addresses that we talked about for the resort in uh, Puerto Rico, if you just want to go check it out. Um, and then where you can find him on all, all of his socials. All right. Awesome. It was great you having so you today. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.